If you find uh, 1 Peter, please, uh, first epistle of Peter, and uh, also maybe while you're doing that, if you would go ahead and pick up on 2 Samuel chapter number 11. 1 Peter, I want to read from uh, verse number 3, and I'm going to talk to you tonight about something I'm not sure if I'm supposed to talk about, but I'm enough ignorant to the culture that I guess it won't matter. Uh, but uh, I do believe this is the thing that God had impressed my heart about. I've been meditating on it for a little while, and uh, I will speak to my own people about this upon my return, but I want to give you tonight what I believe uh, God has uh, impressed me about. Verse number three says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, I'm always amazed at the transition in Peter. I mean, this is the word of God, but what a tremendous transition in that man. I mean, you, you read, this is not the same Peter that started out. You never underestimate what God can do to somebody in the matter of change. You know, you, you, you look and you don't see the whole package. You just don't know what God... And I, I cannot ever read this epistle without standing back and saying, is this the same man? Uh, what, what an incredible grasp and understanding. And I know the Spirit of God penned this, but let's read on from verse number 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept, and I'm grateful for that, who are kept by the power of God through faith under salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice... Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ." Now, when you read a statement like that of being in heaviness and having uh, many tests and a statement like the trial of your faith, when we speak of the trial of the faith, we, uh, we may think of all kinds of things. You know, you may think what the trial of faith, for some people, you know, that meant uh, stonings at the hands of a, a frenzied crowd. Uh, for other people, back uh, around the time of this being uh, penned, there were those who were thrown to beasts and torn asunder and families. And, and uh, you might think of somebody, when you think of trials of the faith, you know, you, you might think of somebody who went to some remote location, some jungle somewhere, and, and maybe was martyred in their mission to further the gospel of Christ. And maybe thoughts like that come to our mind. We think of the trials, the trials of our faith. But you know, the, the reality is, for most of us here tonight, it is very unlikely that any of those things I've mentioned we will ever visit. It's very unlikely that the things we traditionally associate with the trials of the faith, and we could talk of fiery trials, It's very unlikely that we will ever have to face those things. But there are other things that we will face that will indeed try your faith. There are things that perhaps are more common to us that we sometimes don't associate with being a real trial of the faith. But it is something that really does test and examine the very nature of the kind of faith we have. And, and, and put it under the spotlight and examine what kind of faith is it and where is that faith and in whom has it truly been put. And we can go through certain things that really test that. And, and I look back over my life. I, I was saved as a teenager and I was trained in Australia by an American missionary. I did not attend a college. I have no formal education as such. And I, I look back over the journey of God's working in my life. And if I were to point to probably the, the two occasions for me in the last uh, 20 years that have been what I think have been the greatest trials of my faith, 
it would have to do with the thing I'm going to point out tonight. The two times where, where I was, I was, well, firstly, I was not expecting what happened. And so it came as a, as a shock and it, it was just not something I planned for. I didn't think about it. I had not been able to ready my mind. I had not been able to ask myself the question, what would I do if I was in that situation? I just didn't think about it. And when it came, it, 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 it shook me. And it, and it challenged me and it, it made me question what of my faith was resting on God and what was resting elsewhere. And I want to share that with you tonight, what I think that many of you will face, many of you tonight will enter into this message being able to say, I have faced that and I have been through that. And I'd like you to turn to Second Samuel chapter number 11. And as we turn there, uh, I'm counting on the fact that already you have a certain familiarity. We, we read something, I think, of this scripture this morning with the men. This is the story where uh, David has not gone out to war when others have gone. He sent others in his place. And uh, you'll recall that uh, one evening he went for a walk upon the house and looked down and <clears throat> he saw a very attractive woman and he asked after her and, and uh, he took her unto himself and and then uh, David, realizing uh, what has happened, she contacts him and and uh, and explains that uh, that she's with child, and and uh, David sends for her husband, and he attempts to get Uriah to just be with her. He's now uh, somewhat frantically trying to cover up this thing, and and just just has a plan, as it were, to just sort of make it go away. But the plan is not working. Uh, Uriah has a deeper sense of loyalty and a deeper commitment to the battle than was anticipated, and Uriah will not go to his wife. And and so that brings us to the dramatic step that the man of God took that day. In verse number 14 we read, And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter, saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. Uriah was carrying his own death sentence in his hand as he was faithfully reporting back to duty. He had walked away from the king that he had pledged loyalty for, believed in, had put his life on the line many times. He had committed himself to the advance of the kingdom. He had no doubt had plans of, of etching out a life and, and he was glad to have a wife and a family and he had truly bought into the vision of the kingdom. He had given his heart to the cause. Even when it was tested and he was offered a little more luxury than others, he by choice declined that. This was a good man. This was a man that, 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 that you would be glad to have. This was, this was a man who was an exemplary example to others. And as that man journeyed back and, and maybe, maybe was wondering about his uh, blessing at being invited by the king to take that time of rest and was journeying back to, to hand the letter that I'm sure that he would not have considered for a moment to violate the seal and open. Would not have thought such a thing and, and, and with great sense of duty places that in the hand of Joab. He does not understand that what he has done is handing over his death sentence to Joab. And so Joab observes the situation in verse number 16. He looks at the state of the battle. He's a seasoned war veteran. He knows where the danger areas are. He's lost men before. He knows how this ought to be done and he deliberately makes a bad military decision to sacrifice and see a good man fall. And Uriah is is told, you'll go here and you'll be with these ones and you'll be today, you'll be attacking over there. And and I wondered if some of those men questioned that and thought, that that doesn't seem to be wise, but, you know, whatever whatever the boss says. And uh, and they go forward and and then uh, at the right moment, At the right moment, just like David had said, certain ones are called to pull back and Uriah is left to fall. Now, can you imagine 
that you are in the kingdom and, and you are a fellow soldier and you know Uriah and he's a good man. And, uh, and uh, you see what happens. And, and maybe, maybe you're privy to it and maybe you're not. Maybe, maybe you are aware of what's going to happen and, and if you were aware, maybe you would, you would really begin to at least wonder in your mind about why, why would the king do that to one of our choicest? And, and then, uh, maybe you are standing beside and, and you march forward with Uriah and then the word comes, retire, pull back. And you know what's going to happen. And you look and, and, and the signals are being sent, withdraw, pull back. And you realize, but if, if, we, if we pull back, it's inevitable what's going to happen to him. And, uh, and you're told to withdraw and you follow orders and you do. And Uriah, sure enough, falls. And at, at the end of the battle, someone goes out and brings in Uriah's bloodied, messed up body. And they carry him back silently past all the others. And people realize that a good man fell that day. And you start to just wonder a little bit. And then you get back and your wife says, did you hear David, the king, has taken Uriah's wife to marry? Did you know that, honey? And you start adding some things up. And it comes back to you, what you thought was a strange, illogical choice that day on the battlefield. And then, a little while after, she says, guess what? Bathsheba's having a baby. And you start to work out what's going on. Your leader has faltered. This is the man that you had great belief in. This is the one that you knew was anointed of God. And, and you rehearse it back in your mind and, 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 and you say, no, you know, he, he was, he was anointed by God. And, and I, I remember that. And, and remember how God went with him when he went out to that giant and, he ha- he had a victory, you know. It was supernatural what God did, and and uh, and, and and ever since He's come, uh, He has led us to continued prosperity. Uh, we've all gained, we've won. This this is the man of God. And you get into a conflict of mind, as what do you do when the leader that you have pledged your loyalty to is faltering? And you know it. Now it's going to challenge you at the very core of your faith. It challenged me when it happened to me in 1988. And it wasn't those circumstances. And it wasn't even anything that caused the leader to default in any way from the ministry, but it was some other things. But I just never thought that that would come from him. I I never, this was the man who had invested so much in my life. This, This was the man I had looked to. This was the man that I went to and I'll never forget the Sunday morning we, we arrived for church and we had set up the plastic chairs and, and, and a church was being birthed and born there in Australia, a missionary, and we'd committed our, our life to work with this man. I'll never forget the morning we arrived and, and he had got there early and he met me at the door, his face was looking pale and he looked at me and, and I said, good morning preacher, he said, we've had a church split. And he was shaken. And I looked around and, and I remember I said, well, I don't know what you're supposed to say, but I said, well, I just want you to know 
that if everybody else leaves, I'm staying. I'm here for the long haul. And it's not going to affect me what they do. You see, see, the mind of the missionary is, if the nationals turn against me, they might all go. You start to feel very much like a foreigner when the nationals turn against you on the field. And I guess it would have offered some measure of assurance to hear from another national. It's okay. We'll see it through. And we, we had journeyed together through several things and, and uh, we had, we had worked together and it was just, it was just that I did not expect to have what happened happen. And it, it shook me up and I remember many nights losing sleep and I could not, I could not reconcile in my mind how that on one hand this was the man of God. This was the man that God had used to speak to my heart many times. This, this was the man who, who had, who had boldly rebuked me when I needed it. This was the man who had loved me. This is the man who had, who had bought me books and had sacrificed for me. And this was a man who had invested so much. And, and suddenly there was a, a conflict in my mind where I could not reconcile the present course of action with what I had seen in the past. And I was facing a situation where I had a faltering leader. And it was a great trial of faith. Because we have in our minds, we have, we have created, we have created a, 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 a thought that, you know, leaders don't do those things. And, and if, if it, if, if, if the, the narrative of David's life had ended at this point, we would be saying, yep, another Saul. You got so far, ruined it all. Or we might say, well, there's another Judas, you know. You never can tell. They start off so well, and then you see what they're really like. But the narrative does continue, and we do find out he's still the man of God. He didn't cease being the man of God when he faltered in an incredible way. And here becomes the great trial of faith that we have to reconcile And I'm going to help you to answer this question. You say, what do you do when you get faced with with a faltering leader? Now, when I say tonight a faltering leader, I I do not want you to say a faltering leader equals adultery. That's one thing. And and if you if you restrict what I'm saying tonight to that one that one thing that he did, you'll miss this whole thing because leaders can falter in many ways. A leader can falter by simply losing his way. And everybody's saying, lead. Lead, go. Take us on the journey you said you were going to take us on. And he says, I'm just not sure. I'm, I'm just, I, I just, I'm just pray for me. I'm just not sure. And you say, how can this be? This is the man of God. We know he's the man of God. We've heard God speak through him. We've, we've been led to victory after victory. What is going on? And you get faced with a dilemma and, and, and suddenly what's being examined here is how much of, faith is on trial. How much of your faith is truly in God? And how much have you unknowingly perhaps defaulted your faith to another man? And there's a balance between giving a deep and abiding sense of loyalty to the man of God that should be there. But you cross a line when the level of your faith is dictated by the level of his faith. Now you've transitioned to a dangerous place. Now you have stepped out of a place where where God is going to be able to help. And, and sometimes it's not till you face faltering leadership that you start to have to examine what's going on here. And it, and it raises questions about your future. Because like Uriah, you have committed yourself to the kingdom. You've already sacrificed. 
You've already demonstrated your loyalty. You, you've already been willing to go out there and battle and you didn't even mind if he needed to stay home. You, you were okay with that. You just were glad to do something for God. But this has just taken you to a place now where, where this is just raising questions in your mind and, and you, and you, you say, what do you do? What do you do? The, 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 you know he's faltering. You, you know, you know something's going on. What do you do? I will answer that, but I want to show you first of all what you do not do. And I'd like you to turn to Numbers chapter 12. And I want you to see here that God has, has given us some examples, I believe, of, of what you do do and what you do not do. I was with a missionary last Saturday night, not, not this weekend just gone, but the one before we had our missions conference in Australia. And I was with a missionary, and to be honest, I was tired. I was, my mind was starting to get to the place where I realized I had this meeting coming. And, and uh, I went out with the missionary and a, another missionary, two good men, one from China, one from another place. And uh, we were sitting down and, and just having a little cup of tea and talking. And this missionary raised the name of another missionary who has recently been through a scandal involving one of his children, in our country, the media picked it up and ran with it in a big way, and and uh, it just just all came out. And we were sitting there. And, you know, I, I generally prefer not to talk about things that really are not my business. And I was sitting there, and the missionaries, you know, they were talking, and and one of them said, "I guess you heard about such and such." And I said, "Yes." And he said, "Well, you know, that's what happens, isn't it?" And I just I didn't say anything. He said, uh, you know, that's what happens. He said, if he'd handled that church over 10 years when he was supposed to, then maybe God wouldn't have had to judge him that way. I stopped drinking my tea and I looked up and I said, brother, that's a very presumptuous statement you've just made. I said, you've assumed a lot of things in what you just said. I said, you, you've actually entered into a course of judgment that I myself would be afraid to go down. And I took him a little bit and he got shaken. He was due to preach at our church the next uh, Sunday night. That was a Saturday night. Sunday night came round and uh, service had started. I was sitting in my place. The music was on. People were singing. And uh, we were looking and he had not come into the auditorium. And I was sending to a couple of my staff saying, can you find him? Where is he? He must be here somewhere. And finally he did come in a little bit late. And he was, he was sobered and he was, uh, he was uh, shaken a little bit. And I looked at him. I said, you're right. He's a guest preacher. I said, you're right. And he said, yeah. I said, okay. I said, well, you're on. And he went up there and, and he said, uh, he said, you know, folks, it was kind of like he was different. He said, you know, folks, uh, he said, I, I did not want to come here tonight and, and preach. He said, in fact, I, I, I was just going to leave. I was going to run away. I think he was. He said, I got very badly shaken up last night. He said, I went out with your pastor and he said, I said some things that, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't have. And he said, uh, your pastor probably doesn't realize the depth of what happened when we had that little talk. He said, I, I went home and he said, I just, I just fell down and I wept and I cried. And, uh, and just went through a kind of break. He realized what he had done. He had entered into an area of judgment that was not his to enter into. Now you do the same thing as soon as you open your mouth. You've done it. The moment you say it, you've done it. You say, well, I wasn't, I wasn't actually judging him. We were just sharing information. That's gossip. And you were judging him. Because if you really, really cared, you'd be quiet. And you'd let God take care of what's God's business. And you'd take care of what's your business. You know, in Numbers chapter 12 here, something kind of similar happened. And you say... Uh, Pastor, you're in the Uriah situation. Leadership is is faltering. What do you do? Well, this is what you don't do. 
In verse number one, it says, And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses. Now notice this. And this is the insight of the scripture and the revealing of the Spirit of God to the motive behind what is said. Thank God for that. Because people often say one thing, but their true motive is another. And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses. Here it is. Because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Okay. And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. Now what they were doing here, they were looking at Moses' life, and in their, their view he had faltered. And in the view of some of us, we would say he'd faltered. And they said, you know, you have this thing in your life. And, and it, we don't think it's right. And we can see it. And then, and then what they did, because they had a personal agenda there, they, they were, it was problematic to them, there's a family connection here, that they then mask their own agenda in a spiritual reason. And people always do that. They said, you know, the issue is, really, how does God speak? And is he really only, you know, speaking through this one? You know, to us, it's really a spiritual issue. It wasn't. But it gets masked in that way. And whenever, whenever the brethren attack the brethren, they always mask it in a spiritual statement. Because it, it's never really about a personal agenda. It's not about my college versus theirs. No, that would be very base and inappropriate. It's about standards. It's about something else. It's spiritual. And, and, uh, and, uh, and we're not doing this for self. It's exactly about self. And so they spoke out and, and they challenged the man of God. He's faltering. You know, he, yes, uh, he'll say to others, you know, you, you, you ought to marry within your own race of peoples and he'll encourage that separation and, and they'd even preserved that a great deal in Egypt. And yes, he'd done something unusual and yes, it was not common for them to do that. And they saw a faltering man and they go on the attack. They see it as their mandate and their ministry to bring him to account and to default him of his leadership. And the Bible says, the Lord heard it. And it doesn't matter whether it was, it was spoken quietly in the tent of Moses, or it was whispered in his ear across the dinner table, or it was said somewhere as they went for a quiet walk to have a talk to him. It doesn't matter where it was. What matters is the Bible says, the Lord heard it. He heard what they said. Just like the Lord heard it, what the missionary said two Saturday nights ago in the crowd of a crowded coffee shop when people were talking and, 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 and all was going on, the Lord heard it. And any time you take it upon yourself to see that you, you have been called to bring this man down because he has faltered, you have missed the whole picture. That is what you do not do. This missionary said, well, 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 he said, well, well, uh, you know, he preacher, when, when, well, when, you know, when should you intervene? And I said, well, I'm, I'm not going to intervene at all, brother. I said, the Bible says, who art thou that judgest another man's servant? Who am I to say, God, just let me handle this one. I know he's your servant, but clearly there's been a little neglect here. I can take care of it for you. You know, God, I, I feel very strong about sin in a man's life. I'll take care of it. And you, you take it on yourself to believe that because leadership has faltered, that, 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 that it's your job to bring them down. And you're looking at somebody who does not believe that. You say, what do you do? Well, I'll show you. You go back to the second Samuel reference there. And you'll see what happens here. By the way, when, when, when they did that, God defended his man. And God, God didn't just hear it, God got involved. And God put that leprosy on her. You know, the thing about leprosy is a very public thing. 
And even when Moses said, you know, God said no. The whole camp had to stop. You know why? So everybody, how come, how come we're not moving? Um, uh, Miriam's got leprosy. What? How long did that happen? It just happened. What was that about? Well, she, uh, her and Aaron went and challenged Moses about his wife. And a lot of people went, because oh, they were thinking the same thing. And seven days, everybody stops. Nobody goes anywhere and it's noised abroad. Hey folks, settle down. No one's moving anywhere until Miriam just deals with the leprosy thing. Now there's a reason for that. There was a reason God wanted the whole camp to know. Because the next time it happened, just a few chapters later, it wasn't leprosy, it was forfeiting of your life. God upped the ante. Miriam's case was a warning for everybody. It is not your duty to try and bring the man down because you can see some fault in his life. And you make a mistake at that. And you can justify it any way you want to. You, you Well, you know, I'm just doing this because, you know, it, it, somebody in this church has just got to stand up. Somebody in this church ought to shut up. Say, say, what do you do? Well, you're here and the man of God has faltered. And I understand that as that process is happening, there's a kind of limbo takes over the whole kingdom. And here's where it becomes particularly frustrating to, to those who are loyal, to those who've already paid a great price. You know, that, that kingdom was headed by David, but, but the, 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 the accomplishments of the kingdom, many men are listed in the end as being mighty men. And it was, it was a group thing. Yes, yeah, sure enough, an anointed man of God headed it up. But many people had already committed great cost to that cause. And any, any lasting advancement in the work of God is never about one. And here are these men who, who, who the Bible would call mighty men watching a leader in default. Now, now this, 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 this goes on for some months. He's not coming clean about what happened. Your loyalty is holding you back from saying anything. You, 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 you just, you don't know what to do, but inwardly you're getting, your morale is dropping. And you're a good enough leader and a good enough Christian to get about your business and turn up for work every day and, and just, you know, sing the songs and, and shout in the right moments and go through all you need to, but, but inwardly you know we have a faltering headship. And you're watching what's happening to the kingdom and you see you have a kingdom paralyzed by a faltering leader. What do you do? Number one, you just get on and you serve God like you know you should. You say, you say, but no, no, no. Now, now it's time to examine the nature of the faith you have. Your faith is on trial. Now you start to ask yourself, well, well, why did you come to the church? Did God bring you here or did you come for a man? Now, now that has to be looked at. Oh, you, you said God, you said God brought us here. But now that, now that headship is faltering, now maybe, oh, God didn't bring you here. Your faith is on trial. You, you said you joined the church staff because God made it clear to you that's what you were supposed to do. And now headship is faltering. And you're starting to ask questions about whether you're really meant to be here or not. Say, so what's happening? Faith is being put on trial. Now, being examined is how much faith you have in God and how much you have defaulted to a man, and that's never right. You see, somehow you've crossed the line between deep, abiding, 
God-blessed loyalty and transitioned an element of faith in a man and that's never a safe, secure place to rest faith. What do you do? You keep going and you wait. And you don't do what the missionary did two Saturday nights ago. You don't rail judgments across a cup of coffee. You don't sit in the cheap seats and tell God what he ought to do and, and what I would do if I was in this situation. All that does is ensure you never will be in the situation. You're not fit to lead. And, and you, you just, you get on with it. You serve God. Why? Because God put me here. You keep coming back, you say, oh, but the, the, the kingdom is in this kind of limbo and, you know, I don't know what's happening and I dreamed of further victories and it's just like everything is, something's going on and I don't know what it is and I know there's a faltering headship there, but, but if God has put you there, if your faith is in God, you just keep going. And I happen to believe that God will put his foot out sometimes and cause your leader to stumble a little bit so the nature of your faith can be examined. And you can see where your faith truly is lying. Because Jesus is jealous of where faith is placed. And Jesus is never at peace when he watches you transitioning your faith to a man. You're already, you, you, that's a dangerous place to be. You're robbing God of that which belongs to him. You're making it unfair for your leader who cannot bear the burden of your faith put in him. And your faith comes under the spotlight and you have to start asking yourself some very hard questions. And you keep going. And you wait. And you wait. And, and they had to wait. And then finally, in God's timing, and in this case, maybe ten months, maybe more, in God's timing, God taps the man of God on the shoulder and says, now we'll talk. And along came Nathan. And you know, it's interesting to see here that uh, even Nathan did not go until God said go. Even if Nathan knew what had happened, he did not take it on himself. The week after David marries Bathsheba and he hears the whole thing to say, I need to go and take that God task. Somebody needs to tell him what he ought to do for Jesus. No, the man of God, the prophet of God, he just, Nathan waits. So how long Nathan wait until God said, go? We take on ourselves too much. You know, we, 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 we say, oh, you know, I believe in the sovereign hand of God, but you don't. You don't think God can even take care of his own servants. You, 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 you think you could do a better job than God. You are subtly accusing God of some kind of complacency. What's going on here? Can't he see what's happening? Well, he knew the whole deal. Think God found out one day and said, well, look what David's done. Go and send Nathan, take care of that. Oh, God watched and God knew. And there was a waiting and there was a waiting. And you know what was going on? David was going through something in that time. You read Psalm 51, boy, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't a happy camper either. He was, he was struggling within, it was aching, there was a loss of joy. He, 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 he was going through some things himself. He was learning some things himself. And, and God was working with his man, just not quite the way that you think it should have been done. See, you only have a mind for kingdom expansion. And more and more and more. And you don't understand that, that often God is more concerned about what he's doing in someone than through someone. And God is working on his man. And at the right moment, at the right moment, God brings along Nathan and Nathan confronts him. And, and you know, the, the, whole, the, whole, the whole spirit of that is right. You see in Nathan, Nathan was the right man. 
Nathan did not go with a sense of bringing down the fire of God on the leader. You know, a man of God, who really is one, when he sees another man of God, who really is one, falter, there's no sense of wanting to destroy someone's life in that. Men of God are not that way. You say, oh, I know some men of God that way. I say again, men of God are not that way. And you keep going and you wait. And in the right time, God takes care of it. And you have learned some things about your faith. You say, you know, I I didn't think that that would be my journey. You know, I didn't think when I agreed to work with a missionary and and walked away from my job and, and, and put myself on the line and, and, and followed him. I, I didn't think all that was going to happen either. I had no idea. In fact, my, my dream was, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. I didn't understand that actually there was a few other lessons waiting for me. And brethren, it was devastating. It, 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 it was a surprise. It was a hurt deeper than I think anything I'd felt. It made me ask questions about God. It made me ask questions about myself. It, 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 I, I got, I got angry at the man of God. I, I got sad for the man of God. I didn't know what to do. It was a great trial of faith. But it did show me some things about myself. It showed me some things I'm glad I learned then. Faltering leadership can be a great trial of faith. And you know, leadership has many levels, not just found in the church. But there's another trial of faith that can be equally devastating from the other side, and that's faltering fellowship. I remember when I went into the ministry, you know, people asked me sometimes, only, only in this country, by the way, people asked me to sign their, well, it happened in the Philippines too, they asked me to sign their Bibles. And, uh, and I always sign a nice verse. This is a confession. I always sign a nice verse. I sign Joshua 1, 8 and 9. But actually, that's, if you ask me, is that your life verse? Well, it's just a nice verse I prefer to put in front of people's Bibles. I'm too embarrassed to put the verse that God really gave me. It, I, it just wouldn't seem to fit. And I remember when I went into the ministry and, and I was ordained and it was exciting and, and, uh, and I was dreaming of thousands and I believed if you just had a big enough vision, enough energy and you just roared it loud enough and often enough the pews were going to fill and the church was going to bust and, and I had it all worked out and, and was excited about that and, and people just kept leaving. And the first time that I felt God gave me a very, you know, I, I believe all the word of God is given to us. But, you know, it just seemed, and, and for me, I don't say this often, I think, Really, for me, two times in my life. One was ten days ago, and one was when I first went into the ministry, where I felt very clearly that God said, please pay attention to this, this is going to be needful for you, this is special for you. And the verse that I got given when I went into the ministry was John 6:66. Here it is. From that time forth, many of his disciples walk with him no more. I'd be embarrassed to write that in front of your Bible. I'd be embarrassed to tell you that, yes, that's the one God gave me. You know what God was doing? God was preparing me to deal with the fiery trial of faith that will be called faltering fellowship. You see, because, see, what, what happens here is, is that sometimes a leader is far too reliant upon his followers for who he is. If the followers are energized, the leader's energized. If the followers buy the vision, it must be of God. 
If the followers are strong and excited, he's strong and excited. And all that's happening there is, again, you are defaulting faith to the crowd. And as much as you can whip them up, you're up. And when they plummet down, you're down. And when you walk in on Sunday morning and the numbers are up, boy, you feel excited. The Spirit of God is here. But you walk in and the numbers are down. Boy, you're in the depths. And fellowship will falter as much as leadership will falter. In Jesus' darkest hour, the Bible says they fled from him. I mean, not, not, this is not casual acquaintances. You'd expect that from those on the edge. You know, if you, if your church went through a trial, you know, a, a half wise leader understands the edge is going to get a little bit shaken. You expect that. You expect the people on the outer not quite bought into this thing. You know, it, it wouldn't be a big shock to you if they get a little bit weak kneed. But when the very core, you know, not, not just your workers, but the ones that you said, henceforth I call you friends. What if your friends in the church leave you? What do you have? That's what Jesus faced in his darkest hour. When, when they were most needed, they were not. Faltering fellowship. And then, and then you, you, you go down and you find also that in Paul's darkest hour, a man who's battled unwellness for some time and has been through the ups and downs of how do you compare anyone with his journey? And he reaches the, the last, the last days. And you would think after all those years of investing in people's lives, and not the kind of investing you do where you just walk out Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night, kind of investing you do when you live with people for years, because that's what he did. And you're teaching day and night and day, and you teach and you eat and you fellowship and you work and you teach and you preach and you come beside and you help and you distribute gifts. You have, you have committed your very being to this work and these people. And you get to the end of a life of labors like that. And in your darkest hour, you say this. At my first answer, no man stood with me. None. But all men forsook me. You see, when fellowship falters at a crucial hour, leadership will be sorely tested. There may be a season when fellowship can default where you will perhaps be okay. But it's in the darkest hour when you look around and you say, where are even my friends? It happened to Jesus. It happened to Paul. So I don't think that'll happen to me. Well, we hope not. But what if it does? Faith will go on trial. And we're going to see, O man of God, who thundered out the truths from the word of God, we're going to see in that hour how much of that faith truly rested in God in that book and how much you had in a thriving, successful ministry. And when it was gone, you were nothing but a shadow and a wreck of your former self. You tied your all. You transitioned from what was a ministry and a life of service and a calling by God. And somewhere you made the ugly mistake where you put your faith into that whole ministry. And ministry is no place to part faith 
that belongs to Christ alone. And faltering fellowship will expose you for being misguided in where you have anchored your faith. Oh, it's a fiery trial of faith. It's going to put it on show. If you've built your confidence as a leader and your security around the fact that they follow you, when they go, you have no confidence and no security anymore. You anchored it to the wrong thing. When, when you, when you, uh, uh, undertake a task for God and you launched out and you, you believed it was of God because others did and then they defaulted and fellowship wasn't there, then you won't continue either because you did it for the wrong reason. And you're going to find in the life of a leader that faltering fellowship is going to visit at some point. And it may not be as far out in the circle of influence that you wish it was. It may visit much, much more closer to where you are. For Jesus, it was the very inner core. Paul looked around to the those he invested his life in and said, there are none. No man stood with me. If you're only joyful and good when the crowds are up, when it's gone, so is all your joy and all your goodness. Paul finished that word of testimony by saying, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. You can only say that if you have put your faith in the right one. And brethren, you be careful. It's a subtle shift. You start moving faith and then you have a faltering leader and it all comes undone. It's a subtle shift to moving faith to ministry, which is people and then having it all come undone. It's a great trial of faith that some of us have faced and many of us will yet face. And it's going to reveal a lot about where you truly have anchored your faith.